Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So if you have your Bibles, you can be opening up to Luke 24. We're going to be taking a break from 1 Samuel for obvious reasons. But we're going to be parked primarily in Luke 24 and verses 1 through 12 today. This is usually an Easter message. However, we all understand that the gospel is not pigeonholed by just one date on the calendar. This is something that we can gain from continually. We should be going back to continually just to dive into that deep well of Christ's resurrection. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. That's also, if you don't have a Bible in general, that's also a gift from us to you. Please take that home. Get into that every single day. So like I said, we're going to be in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. So there are events and there are dates in history that change the world forever. There are times that affect nations, families, individual lives, and ways that will forever shape who we are. As an example of how impactful single moments in history can be, let me just quote to you this. December 7th, 1941 a date which will live in infamy. I'd venture to guess that not many people, if anybody in this room, heard FDR say that for the first time over the radio. However, I am also going to venture to guess that the majority of the people in this room know exactly what I'm talking about when I just say that date. The attack on Pearl Harbor shaped our nation in a way that is still being felt today. That single attack pushed our nation from being the 17th ranked military in the entire world to the lone superpower just four years later. If that one just seems a little bit too distant from you, you can't really connect with that, what about September 11th, 2001? The events that happened on that fall day resulted in hundreds of thousands of men and women from countries around the world descending on the Middle East. It would shape and change how we live our lives. We're still feeling the impact of that single day in history 22 years later. The events that we see happening on the news on a daily basis can almost be directly connected to that one day. Although these events were history changing, they all pale in comparison to the single morning that we will talk about this morning. So if you will, go with me to that passage, Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was in, still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men be crucified, and on the third day rise. 
And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the, all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So December 7th and September 11th changed the lives of many people, but some in our world still went untouched. The untouched tribes of the Amazon would look at you with a lot of confusion if you mentioned either one of those dates. However, the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects the lives of every single person ever born and that will ever be born. It's important to understand that without the resurrection, Christ's life and his death would not have mattered. He was the first to conquer death, and by his resurrection, we can have eternal life. If we look back at the Bible, we see that Elijah, through the power of the Lord, raised the widow's son from the dead. We see Christ raise Lazarus from the dead. We see Peter, through the power of the Lord, raise Tabitha from the dead. However, all of these people had to die again. The widow's son is not with us today. Lazarus is not with us today. Tabitha is not with us today. But Christ, Christ conquered death and will live forever. Through him, we may have our sins forgiven and live eternally with him. So the question we will discuss today is this. What is your reaction to the resurrection? So before we get into some, the real bulk of our message, I wanted to go over something real quick. The resurrection of Christ is written about in all four Gospels. And the way that it is talked about is a testament to the truth of these events. Many will look at the four different uh, writings of the Gospels and they'll point to how different they are, just to kind of how a little bit of a different tone to each one, different details in each one. A lot of people will look at that and say that is the reason that it's not true. However, we understand that the differences of the four Gospels actually give us the full picture of the Gospel. So whenever we look at Luke, for example, the text today, we look at Luke 24, 1 through 3, we see, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. When we look at that text, that gospel, and we compare it to, say, John, we see in John 20, 1 through 2, the same, te same telling, same events, but we see, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, when it was still dark. So we're matching up there, right? We see in uh, Luke 24 that it's first of the day of the week at early dawn. So we get a picture of that later on in Luke's text. We see that it's Mary Magdalene. So we're, we're still matching up. We're still together. When we go on in John, we see, as the stone had been taken away from the tomb, still matching. We see that in Luke as well. We're still step and step. 
However, this is where a lot of people say, well, see, this is different. This is wrong. Because at this point, in Luke's story, we get more detail. We get the details of, of the two in the, the sparkling clothing. We get the details of what was going on at the tomb. However, John just skips over that. John skips over that and goes straight to, so she ran and went to Simon Peter. And then we get the end of Luke connected back to this. So there's an entire gap there. So why is it John talks about this, or Luke talks about all these details, but John doesn't? John was excited. He didn't lose his personality in his writing of the gospel. He wrote as John, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We get more detail from Luke because Luke is a different man. He's a different man writing the gospel down as inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's a very detailed writer. We get John, who gets very excited and just wants to get straight to the apostles. And so we go straight to the apostles with it. It's the same story that we're reading in all the gospel narratives. It's the same narrative. The authors are just focusing on different details. It's important for us to understand, and it's also what we'll be focusing on today, the details of Luke. The details of Luke focus on the reaction of those involved in the story. And like I said, that's what we will focus on heavily today, those reactions. The beautiful things about the reactions and the detail of Luke is that these reactions are the same ones that have been experienced by mankind about the resurrection since it happened. It's also the same reactions that I'm guessing everyone in this room are having in one way or another. For those of you that like taking notes, I've got three main points that we'll be going over. It's the three reactions that we see in this Luke narrative. The first reaction is perplexity or confusion. The second one is disbelief. And the third one is marvel. So that's perplexity, disbelief, and marvel. So let's go over perplexity first. That's the first one we see in this narrative. And we see that in verses one through four. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Up to this point in the entire gospel narrative, perplexity was a pretty common response to Christ's ministry. The disciples continually either, and the disciples and pretty much everyone around Christ, pretty much either misunderstood or completely missed the point of Christ's ministry of here on earth and everything that was being taught to them, not everything, majority of things being taught to them. For an example, when we look at Matthew 16, 21 through 23, we see, from the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this surely, or this shall never happen to you. But he, Christ, turned and said to Peter, Behold, or get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. What we see in that text is a great example of perplexity in Christ's life, in Christ's ministry. Not only that, 
we see Peter being told exactly what we're reading about this morning, what would happen to him. We see Peter completely missing the point of Christ's ministry. He goes as far as trying to rebuke Christ in this instance. Before he's put in his place, in his perplexity. However, confusion of the Bible doesn't just stop with the four Gospels. It doesn't just stop with things like that. For another example of this, we can look at Acts. We see in Acts 8, 28 through 32, when talking about the Ethiopian eunuch. It's the story of Philip being told by the Holy Spirit where to go to. He encounters the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot. And we see, seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody guides me? The resurrection of Christ, the gospel in general, can be perplexing to a lot of people. It can be perplexing to us that have studied it for a long time. However, the Bible itself can sometimes be perplexing. The fact that a holy and righteous God would look down on us in our fallen and sinful state and even choose to reveal himself to us is something that should perplex us. When we realize that that same holy and righteous God decided before the foundation of the world that he would choose to save any of us should be confusing. And to go a little bit further, the fact that that same God would sacrifice his only son, one of the three triune parts, as an atonement for our sins should be amazing. And to add to this perplexing series of of questions and thoughts, the question comes up, why? Why would he do this? And the answer to that is for his own glory. So what should your response to perplexity be in your life? If you're sitting in this room and you're hearing the story of the resurrection and it just confuses you. If you hear the story of the gospel and it just confuses you, what should your response be to that? Our response should be to daily walk with the Lord. To daily be diving into your Bible. To read it. To study it. To meditate it. To meditate on it. And to pray over it. We should also, and this is a beautiful thing about the local church. I'm glad that we're going over this this quarter of the local church. Because we should also be surrounding ourselves with mature, seasoned believers that can come alongside us and help us in our confusion. I really, when I was a kid and growing up, I really loved sports. I really loved basketball. I really loved football. Tried track, absolutely hated it. But I loved basketball and I loved football. And one thing that I was told by almost every coach that I ever had, by my dad, by pretty much anyone that I knew that was playing basketball, was there's two things that you need to be continually doing if you want to be good at basketball. One is to practice it. Just practice, practice, practice. The other thing is to always be playing somebody that is better than you. If you're playing somebody that is worse than you, you're not going to really learn new skills. You're not going to learn new things. The same can be said with how we get through confusion 
and perplexity. We practice. We're constantly in the Word. If we're confused by something, we dive into the Word and study it and meditate on it so that we can learn it. If you just sit and you dwell on your perplexity and your confusion, you're just going to sit and dwell on your perplexity and your confusion. Get into the Word. Study it. Pray about it. But it's also true that that example of sports and playing against someone that's, that's better than you to get better at it, that's why you surround yourself with seasoned, mature believers. God did not call us home the second we became a Christian for a reason. There's multiple reasons. One of them is to spread the gospel. The other one is to come alongside one another and build each other up. To come alongside each other and help disciple one another. To come alongside each other and make sure that other believers are walking right in their walk. The second thing that we see in this text is disbelief. We see this in verses 10 through 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanne and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as idle tale, and they did not believe them. The apostles' reaction to the resurrection is somewhat shocking for those of us with the full word of God. It's shocking because it looks, if we look back at previous interactions in the gospel, we see that they were told directly what was going to happen. However, again, let's not beat down the apostles too much. Let's realize that everything they're hearing is within three days of their, their Savior being crucified. Three days of some of them seeing him on the cross. Three days of, for example, Peter having denied him three times and being crushed by that weight of sin. It's easy for us to be on this side of it going, how did they miss this? In reality, if you were in the same situation, you'd probably miss it too. So for, for background on that, Matthew 17, through 23 gives us a good insight into how much the, the apostles knew at this moment. It says, as they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. However, what we see in our text is that they were still distressed and in disbelief. The description of what disbelief looks like in our lives is this. It can take multiple different approaches. I've got three written down. I'm sure as I go through this, you can think of many others that, that disbelief can look like in your own life. The first one I have written down is you can have a verbal disbelief. The most common and obvious form of disbelief is just a verbal disbelief. The complete denial of the resurrection or of the gospel those that hear it but choose to argue against it or choose to make claims about their own ways to the Lord. Much like those that will read the accounts that we talked about earlier of the four Gospels and pit them against each other, that's what we're talking about here. Well, if John said this but Luke said this, how can this be true? There's no way I can believe that. The second way that we see disbelief take root in our, our own lives is actually in our hearts. 
this disbelief takes the form of the Pharisees. This form is when we talk about spiritual things, we speak the right words, and say the right things, we quote the right scriptures, but we make sure that it does not penetrate our own hearts. We see in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There are a lot of people that walk around with that right Bible-ese rolling around in their head. They know what the right answer is. They can quote it to you. They can correct you on what you're doing, but it hasn't penetrated their heart. They're walking around like Pharisees. They're just eager to correct. They're eager to show their knowledge, but they just don't let it penetrate their heart. It's changed nothing about them except what they know. Again, we see in James 2, 19 through 20, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's a great example of how a very lost group can know the Lord. They can know who he is. They can know what's happened. They know Scripture. They know how to use Scripture, but they're not of the Lord. I mean, you even think of, if we go back to the gospel narratives, you think of Jesus going up to the possessed man. They knew who Jesus was, and they begged him to be put in the swine. They knew him, but they were not of him. The final way that we see disbelief taking root in our lives is in our lives in general. A third way we can show our disbelief is in the way that we live out our own lives. We may confess the right things, much like not letting it penetrate our hearts. We can confess the right things and hold our own in spiritual conversations. However, we, are, we allow ourselves to stop just at our minds. So let me ask you this, has the truth of the gospel and the resurrection so profoundly changed you that it has affected your daily life? Are the truths of the Bible penetrating your heart and molding you into the man or woman that the Lord has called you to be? When I think, when I wrote that statement down, the thing that I was thinking of is almost all of Paul's epistles, where we see the put-ons and the put-offs, or put-offs and the put-ons. You see just a laundry list. Paul is great at those lists. A laundry list of ways that we used to live apart from Christ. The sins that we so enjoyed. The sins that we so immersed ourselves into. But then they also usually end with, but God. But God saved you from those sins. He called you out of those sins. What we see usually in those laundry list of things is that Paul at some point, either before or after, that will say, you were one of those, but now you're not. Now you're one of these, and he gives you these lists to put on. Is the story of the resurrection, is the gospel so penetrating your life that it changes your life in the daily way that you live? I don't think any of you thought that you would get by with this sermon without an Alistair Begg quote from me, so here's your Alistair Begg quote. 
We can't be passive or indecisive regarding who Christ is to us. Is he Savior or is he no one? There's no middle ground in a Christian life. There's no neutral ground in a Christian life. That's why those put-offs and put-ons are so important. If you put off some kind of sin in your life, but you don't replace it with what God has called you to be, that ground's not going to stay neutral. You're not just going to continue to coast in that area of your life. Another sin's going to take over. There's no neutral ground in the Christian life. Christ is either Savior or he's no one. So what should our personal response be to disbelief in our life? If we feel that sin creeping up in us, if we read the resurrection narratives and we just can't wrap our minds around it, we choose not to believe that it happened, what should our response be to that? It's ironically similar to perplexity. Our response to disbelief is getting into the word and studying it. As we mentioned earlier, most of those who deny the story of the resurrection do so on how it's told in the four gospels. However, when you study all four together, you get a full, de- full view of the details of the story, not just four different fragments. The same can be said with the Bible as a whole. When you get into it, you really study it, meditate on it, put the pieces together, you come away with a realization that it's a story that no man could write and that none would if they could. It reminds me of a quote. I believe it was Spurgeon that said, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole believer. We have to have the whole Bible to fully understand the story of even the resurrection. We see in Mark 9, 24, immediately the father, and this is talking about a uh, father who was struggling with disbelief. He went to Christ about his child and said, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The only one that can help you through your unbelief in the resurrection, in the gospel, if anything of the Bible, is the Lord himself. So in your disbelief, get in the word, but also cry out to the Lord. He's eager and waiting for you to pray, to cry out to him. There's another example that came to mind when I was writing down this part. It's a a gentleman named Lee Strobel. He's an author. He was a journalist for multiple newspapers, for really world-recognized newspapers. At the start, he was a very ardent atheist. Could, could not stand Christianity. Hated the Lord. Well, one day his wife came home and announced to him that she had gotten saved. She was a follower of Christ now. And what Lee did was instead of really diving into that with her or coming alongside her and trying to figure out what's happened to her, he chose to use all of his in- investigative power and all of his journalism skills to go through the Gospels and prove the gospel's wrong. Or as how he put it, he chose to use his skills to save his wife from the cult of Christianity. Well, the end result of him going through the Bible, dissecting it, 
piecing it apart, putting it back together, looking it upside down, sideways, every which way. So he came to Christ. He's now a pastor. He's wrote multiple books about Christianity. If you're confused, if you're in disbelief about the gospel, about the resurrection, about anything, get in your word. Come alongside other believers. The third point that we're going to go over is marvel. That's marvel. We see that in verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. As I read the Bible more and more, I find myself more and more drawn towards Peter. Peter is a very interesting character in the gospel narrative. Of all the apostles, he was the most real for us to connect with. His emotions were always on full display. They were always just sitting there on his sleeve. And his thoughts rarely stayed in his own head. He was the type that would speak first and ask questions later. The last time that we would have seen Peter in this gospel narrative, though, was probably at one of his lowest points in life. The last time we would have seen Peter in this gospel narrative is when he had denied the Lord three times. But now we get a far different picture of Peter. A repentant and eager Peter is now sprinting, sprinting to the tomb in hopes that the story was real, in hopes that that story was true. To the rest of the world, I think that I can say that those of us in this room just look crazy. We are a group of broken and messy sinners that somehow love one another. I think of what we did last night, going to the Deacon's house and having that fellowship, having a time of worship, having a time of prayer. And as, you, as I stood back and just looked over the crowd that was there, the demographic was everywhere by age, by gender, by walk in our, or by stage of our walk in the Lord, by families. It was great. It was beautiful. The only thing that would bring us together like that, none of us were related by blood, unless you had your kids there. But the only thing that brought us together is our love for Christ. We had a group of crazy people just hanging out around a fire, singing praises to the Lord. The reason for this is because we are changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. That change allows us to marvel, just as Peter did. So that brings us to, what's your response to marveling? We've gone over perplexity. We've gone over disbelief. What should our response to marveling be in our lives? This one's good. Never stop marveling. Never stop. When you study the word, always remind yourself of the weight of that task. Always remember that the Lord created us knowing we would sin against him, knowing he would have to send his son to die for us, knowing 
that his plan of salvation would have to take place. But he still created us. He still revealed himself to us. And out of his own glory and goodness, he did so. When we go to the Lord in prayer, always remind yourself of the magnitude of that privilege. The God of the universe, the God that is all good, all loving, all powerful, all knowing, allows us to commune with him. And he listens to us. Just as the old hymn goes, I will not boast in anything, not gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast about Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from this reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Never stop marveling in that, ever. I'm going to conclude here with a challenge to everybody in this room. And that challenge is what is your response to the resurrection of Christ? Are you perplexed by it? Then get in the word. Don't let the word leave your mind. Learn to apply it. Surround yourself with mature believers that can help you understand and fully enjoy the gospel. Are you living a life in disbelief? Do you live your life searching for the next argument, ready to pounce and attack like Strobel was? Always ready to take on the cult of Christianity? Or maybe you're not quite that extreme. Maybe you know the gospel, but live it like a Pharisee. Maybe you have it memorized, but that knowledge has not yet migrated to your heart. Again, Get in the Word. Study it. Meditate on it. Pray about it. Open up to fellow believers to help you. Be vulnerable with your fellow believers. Nobody can help you if they don't know what you need help with. Be willing to open up. And finally, are you marveling? Keep marveling. Never stop marveling. Go to the word with open eyes and an open heart. Take it in as if it's the first time every time. Come to the Lord in prayer with, full, with the full weight of the fact that the creator of the universe wants you to talk to him and takes pleasure in your obedience of doing so. These are not small things. Enjoy them. Love them. Always marvel in them.